Well, you can go ahead and, uh, and turn in your Bibles as a, as a reference point and some place to, to put your thumb to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That is a, a verse we will reference at some point tonight. But again, it's not, uh, not an exposition of, of those verses and uh, not where we're going to camp out. Because, you know, this is a little different. I mean, you know, I'm used to coming in and turning to a specific passage in the Bible and working through it with a nice little outline and giving you some application. But this is looking at a confession, looking at a, concre- a creed that is stating something very clearly. And we come to it as those who would confess and agree with these truths. So, and up to this point, you've worked through, um, and, and I, how many of you have this book? Just like when we went through the nine marks, I mean, it's, it's not an absolute necessity that you have this book, but it's a good reference point, and uh, Dr. Muller's done a great job uh, writing this, and I think his intent in writing it is spot on, that we, uh, as Brian talked about Sunday evening, we look at the old paths, we, we look at these things that are trustworthy and true, and be reminded of them, and be reminded to walk in them. So, so far, what you've looked at is, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and tonight we come to this, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So, just that phrase, you know, I was slated to, to teach some of these classes starting in September, going into October, and Jonathan contacted me about tonight, I thought, yeah, let's do it. I mean, I, I love to be here with you guys, and I love to do this. And my family and I are getting ready to leave to go to Colorado. We're excited about that. So I thought, what's a great way to sort of end our time here in Louisville and, and head out there for a week. But, um, you know, going into this and, and reading those words, um, each one of those things is so extremely significant. And the, and the lion's share of this creed deals with Jesus, and, and for good reason. So it, it, it gets us to him, as you looked at last time, by going through this belief in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we talk about this issue of belief. And that's how the, the phrases in the, in the creed start. I believe. And belief is a very significant thing because everyone has beliefs of some, I mean, beliefs of some kind, no matter how rudimentary they may be. You believe in certain things. Belief is very important, but to, to the extent that it comports to reality is even more important, okay? Because there's a protection there. If we believe in things that are not true, that is a danger. We want to believe in things that are absolutely, rock-solidly true. So what is a biblical, salvific belief? What does the Bible mean? What is this creed getting at when it says, I believe? And I know you've already covered this in, in earlier classes regarding this, but, but think about this for a moment, because now, because that little phrase goes with each part of this creed. I believe Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. So, biblical belief would have the elements of trust and love. Here's how I would define it. Trust and love leading to resolution and action. I heard one time, John Piper was, he was not correcting R.C. Sproul. Nobody does that, but he, he, was, he was filling out something R.C. Sproul had said about this, this notion of belief, of faith. And R.C. Sproul simply uses, you probably heard many times, somebody using the example of a chair, saying, you know, we have faith every time we sit down in a chair. We believe that this chair is going to function as it's been designed to and hold us up. And John Piper said, 
I get that, but the big difference is when you're talking about belief in Jesus Christ is if you're comparing it to believing in the chair, then you've got to absolutely love and treasure that chair. There's more to it than merely believing. It has a characteristic to it. That there's a deep love. And that's why I said it's trust and love leading to resolution and action. Because these things that we believe are precious, life-changing, and soul-shaping. So we're not just talking about nominal things that we believe here. That's not what the creed is dealing with. But absolute, rock-solid truths that are essential for our growth and our walk and even our, our union with Christ. As Dr. Muller says in that book, everyone believes more than the Apostles' Creed, but no one can believe less. You cannot believe less than the things that are stated in that creed. So there's a deep and settled conviction that arises from the drawing and convicting power of the Spirit of God, the, the truth revealed to us about who we are, who God is, and what He has done for us in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, interesting thing about belief is belief does not affect reality. In other words, Something is not true simply because I believe it's true. Now we get into that, you know, it's, it's, so it's dangerous to, to believe in things that are not true. But whether or not I believe something to be true that is true does affect whether or not I benefit from the reality of that situation. So I think of what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, that we would be sanctified in the truth, and God's word is truth. And that's why all creeds and confessions must be measured against Scripture. They must be held up against the standard of the Word of God. And with the Apostles' Creed, we see that. These things are drawn from the pages of Scripture. And we realize when reading the Creed that the majority of it, the content, again, deals with Jesus, and rightfully so, because all of God's promises are yes and amen in Him. All the truth for us. And so we look at that tonight. Um, one thing Dr. Muller said as well in this book is that on the day of judgment, we will be defined by our Christology. We will be defined by what we believe about Jesus. And now we see why it's true, why it's necessary that what we believe conform to the reality of the situation. That we believe accurately about who he is and what he has done. So we're introduced to this phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And of course, his, as we'll see in a moment, is referring back to what's already been covered in the creed, that this is God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And the stunning significance of this confession can be seen when we break it down to its individual components. Just the phrase we're looking at tonight. But before we do that, I want you to consider the importance of what we're talking about with a couple of scriptures. John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... And you'll see why that's significant in just a moment. He gave the right to become children of God. And then Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we're going to see why that's important in a moment, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What we confess about Jesus is eternally significant. It's very important. So let's break these, this down individually. I believe in, the first thing we come through to, Jesus Christ. So this is a name married with a title. The name, Jesus, Yeshua. 
very common name at that time. Very common Jewish name, but like all Jewish names, it has destiny and purpose wrapped up in it, and even more so with this man, Jesus of Nazareth. But the creed very clearly identifies, since that is a common name, he the, the creed identifies who he's talking about, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. So this is a specific Jesus we are talking about. So the name means Yahweh is salvation. Why? Since other Jewish boys had that name, why is it significant here? Think about what the angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. The position that he was in, discovering that his betrothed was found to be with child, and he's wondering how he's going to handle this situation and put her away quietly, not wanting to shame her. And the angel appears to him and says something extremely significant about this name. He says, she will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, at this point, Joseph, I mean, it's amazing what's happening in the moment, but this is a common name. But he tells him why he is to name him this particular name. For he, get this, he will save his people from their sins. Not he will make possible the salvation of his people or he will open the door and say, come on in to the people, but he will in that act save his people from their sin. This is an extremely significant name. This is the assurance of God redeeming a people for himself. So this name means everything when we confess it. But then the title that's married to it is Christ, the Anointed One, the long-awaited Messiah, the greater Son of David who would be everything for us that David failed to be. That every potential Messiah that came in the line of kings from David was not. This one would fulfill everything for us. He would turn back the curse and achieve the redemption of God's people and make all things new. The prophets are full of anticipation of this one. The long hoped for Messiah. The greater son of David. I mean, you, you, you get this anticipation as you read through them. That something more has to happen. And when you work through, and I've said this before, when you work through reading through the Old Testament and reading specifically in Leviticus and you get into the Levitical sacrificial system, what that screams at us, because you always hear, that's tough to read because it's so monotonous with all of the sacrifices, all that it's supposed to be. There's grace in that, but it's supposed to make us scream, surely there's something more full and final that will take place and take care of everything that these sacrifices cannot do. And the author of Hebrews makes that very clear, that this is taken care of in Jesus. And that title, Christ, number one, it's a confession about him. Now, he is God's anointed one. He is the chosen one. He is the Messiah. He's going to fulfill God's purpose. But also, it's a confession about us, because we need a Savior. We need this one. And it says something about the problem that we've experienced. 
It says that we need someone who can take care of this problem in which we have offended cosmically the sovereign with our sin. That we need somebody who can solve the problem on our behalf. I mean, the office, if I'm referring again to the book of Hebrews where I've lived for the last year, if Jesus is the great high priest, and he is, and I've told the students in, in the Sunday school class, the, the fact that the office of priest exists says that there's a breach between God and man. That's the only reason it exists. It assumes that something is terribly wrong between God and you and I. And so we need this one, the Christ, the anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah. And so and our understanding and confession of who Jesus is does not come by our own clever investigation or deduction. You remember, Jesus asked in, in Matthew 16, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And there was a lot of answers there. Well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Now, this was not for information for Jesus' sake. Jesus knew exactly who they thought he was. But he's teaching them a lesson about grace. Because Peter says what? He says, you are the Christ. There it is. The son of the living God. And watch what Jesus says to him. And he would say the same thing. And we have to, we, we have to admit that this is, the, this is true of you and I. If we confess what this creed is saying, then this is the truth. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The fact that we would confess that this Jesus is the Christ that we need is an act of sheer grace. The fact that we can see him as the long-awaited one that takes care of our deepest need, which is the breach between us and God because of our sin, is nothing but grace. Because we can't come to that conclusion on our own. We will not come to that conclusion. You know, the conclusion I come to on my own regarding the problem between God and I would be, well, I need to do this or this better. I need to do X, Y, Z. Or actually, I'm okay with God. Everything's fine. That's where I would go left to myself. But the Spirit revealed that something much deeper was wrong that I could not fix and needed someone outside of me fix so and this is the only christ you know god did not give us an array of saviors to choose from and pick as best fit our needs in our life situation this is his messiah and this is where we get to next i believe in jesus christ his only son and this is significant as well dr Mueller points out in his book that this designation of, of son is rooted in the Old Testament, tied to God's promise to, to David in 2 Samuel 7, when he said, your son will build a house for me. And we know that Solomon did indeed build a temple, but Jesus, the far-off greater son of David, is building God's house, the church. And this is what he told Peter after his confession of him being Christ. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus is building God's house as his only son. 
Now let me say this. It says His only Son. And I mentioned earlier that, yes, that's a reference back to God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Understanding who Jesus is. Now get, get this clear. Understanding who Jesus is must be rooted in, must have as its foundation a biblically robust and accurate doctrine of God. And I say that because I work with a group of Mormons. And their, their understanding of who Jesus is comes from their twisted, unbiblical, carnal understanding of who God is. I mean, you can, you can see the chain reaction. And the further you get from their twisted, carnal understanding of who God is, you watch how badly the doctrines twist. I mean, it's, it's unrecognizable that they would say that Jesus and Satan are half-brothers. I, I mean, this is stuff that's worse than science fiction. It's unbiblical and blasphemous. And so to, to correctly understand who Jesus is, we've got to have a very clear understanding of who the God of the Bible is. If we don't have an accurate understanding of who He is, how can we ever understand how we've offended Him with our sin? I mean, if we don't understand Him as absolute, sovereign, and holy, and unchangeable, how will we feel that we've offended Him somehow? If we don't understand who He is, as the Bible reveals Him to us. So, Jesus is His only Son. And, and you know, I, th I think of that, that Mormon doctrine of Jesus, and I can't even say it. Jesus is his only, monogamies, only, unique, only begotten son. Eternally begotten, not made. Listen to John 1, 14 through 18. And I know you, you likely know these passages well, but notice how John emphasizes this. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is essential. That Jesus is the one and only Son of the Father. This gives meaning to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So this is in agreement with God as one God in three persons. This, this is a, I mean, the creed is a Trinitarian confession. And so we're talking about the second person of the Godhead here. No mere man, but fully God. And so it's impressing upon us the nature of who Jesus is, what he's done, and who he is. Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men 
by which we must be saved. Why? Because he's the one and only son, the one Christ, the one Messiah. And as I read those passages, did you, did you notice the first person plural in these things? The we. We've beheld his glory. No other name given among men by which we must be saved. This, and this takes us to the next point here. This is our common confession. You'll notice that when we start to read this creed, it, it, it's in the first person. I believe. But it immediately takes us into these, to considering these things that are communal. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's significant. Because understanding who he is and what he's done immediately calls to mind that he's done it for us. That he's done something in building his church. So our. And the reason the scripture is full of commands regarding one another is that God has brought us into community in order to function. And this is why it's so... Look for the right word here. I get in trouble sometimes when I say the wrong words. Um, you're supposed to laugh at that. <laughs> Pastors get in trouble when they say the wrong words, don't they? And they don't intend to. We can say words and... It is... And I want to say anomaly. It's a Christian outside of the... I got in trouble one time for putting this on a church sign at, at a church I pastored. I said there, there is no... I think I said something like there is no Christianity apart from the church. Meaning, we are brought together. We're not supposed to be lone ranger Christians. You will fall by the wayside. We, perseverance is a community project. We need each other. So, God has brought us together, redeemed us as his people. Not a bunch of individuals that do their own thing, but has drawn us to him to be together. We function. We fight this war called faith together. Think of the rich analogies that the Bible uses for the church. I mean, even... The Greek word for church, ecclesia, is, is an assembly. I mean, it implies more than one. It implies us coming together. But think about these things. The body. I mean, Paul used this, this analogy. The body has many parts. And we're all different. We have different gifts. We function differently, but we are one body that needs each other. If you chop a part off, what happens? It dies. That's a spiritual reality as well. The household of God. Implying what? That we're in the household together. Family. You know, brothers and sisters. We're called continually. Which implies that you and I, whether or not we know each other at a deep level, and may have even have personalities that, that clash, we're brothers and sisters. And I've said this over and over again. It, if there was a church full the Lord forbid, of a church full of people like me that like all the same things I do, who think the way I do, that, that does not take grace to glorify God. Unbelievers do that all the time. They're attracted to like people. And, but what shows and displays the manifold grace of God is His bringing many different people together who have different likes and different personalities. And, and they have this common, deep, bond in this Messiah 
a deep bond in Christ. That takes grace. And it's not a bad thing to say that, that it takes grace for you and I sometimes to get along or to see things the same way. I mean, it's supposed to. It takes the grace of God for us to function as we should. And that's a good thing. The things that God has called and declared us to be, we are to do together. We are the saints. We do this together, not individually. Our culture puts so much emphasis on the individual aspect of faith and turns it into a private matter that no one dare question or examine. But the Bible knows nothing of this type of faith. Your, your faith is personal. It can't be less than that. But hear me, it is not private. Does that make sense? I mean, no one, no, it has to be personal because nobody else can believe savingly on my behalf. But my faith is not private. That means it's open for examination to you. And if you see me, I mean, for our own soul's sake, our faith can never be private. How else can we examine one another? How can we restore one another with gentleness if my faith is a private matter that I let no one examine? It can't, can't do it, can you? We have to, to be open with our faith. It is a, a shared... I mean, think of the glory of that. I mean, the, the creed later on will get into this aspect when it says, I believe in one holy Catholic church, meaning universal meaning the church as a whole, through all times and locations, because we're together. So that's the hour. We do this together. Then he says what? Our Lord. Now this, is, <laughs> this is very important. This is another, another title. It's, it, it's a title of function and position. Okay? So... Say Jesus, does it say, I believe in Jesus, our what, buddy, life coach, guide, inspiration? No. Friend? Well, yes, but not primarily or fundamentally. Primarily and fundamentally, he is Lord. Hebrew, Adonai. Greek, Kyrie. Latin, Domine. Uh, this is a designation of authority. And see, and this, why is this significant for human beings? Why is this significant for you and I? Somebody tell me. What problems do we have with authority? Anybody in here have a problem with authority? Everybody, raise your hand. You, because we want to be our own authority. It goes back to that God complex. I want to be sovereign over my life. I want to rule my kingdom. And if you mess with it, I get wrathful. That's what we do. By God's grace, he changes us and moves us along the spectrum so that becomes less and less an issue. But this is huge. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and I don't mean to diminish it down or boil it down to just that aspect of authority because you could, we could spend a long time talking about this issue. But the designation is appropriate. It's the, it's the next step. It's the logical expression of what the creed has already stated. Jesus is the accomplishment and embodiment of Yahweh's salvation. He is the anointed one. He is the second person of the Godhead. As such, he is our authority. And it's important to note, because there's a belief system out there, and 
many of you have probably heard this. It was bigger in the 70s, I believe. There's a belief system out there that teaches that one can become a Christian without confessing Christ as Lord, that it's just a faith issue and not a repentance issue, which is really what that means. That I don't have to say he's Lord of my life. I, the Bible knows nothing, nothing of this either because to, to have faith in Christ, because that's their argument. It's, the Bible says you come, we're saved by grace through faith. And I mean, I heard a prominent SBC pastor say this one time. All some people want to put repentance in there and add that to it. It's a repentant faith. Paul, this is, that's why I had you turn to Romans 10, 9, and 10. This is how Paul describes the experience of salvation. Faith and repentance. He, he sort of flips it. Repentance and faith. Look at the passage. I mean, I think he puts it to bed very clearly. Romans 10, 9, and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's repentance. I'm going to explain why I believe that in just a second. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's faith. You will be saved. For the heart one believes and is justified, and when the mouth one confesses and is saved. The issue of lordship is essential for repentance. If Jesus is Lord, and he is, then he is our authority, and we turn from sin and self to him. I mean, what does repentance mean? Who do we turn to if we're turning from sin and self? If there's no authority over us, who are we turning to? We turn to Jesus as Lord, our authority. Listen to Philippians 2.9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this passage is, is a coronation passage. It's, it's an enthronement. It's a consummation of all things. Where Jesus is revealed without opposition as the true and eternal Davidic king. So it, it's important. This issue of understanding him as Jesus Christ, the Lord. There's so much wrapped up in those words. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does he mean by that? That no one could actually mouth those words? No, he's talking about an actual, true confession of those words as truth. That's how important this is, that we don't confess Jesus as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So that's why I'm, I'm arguing that this whole issue of coming to Christ without confessing Him as Lord is, is faulty. It's deadly. It's more than faulty. That by the Holy Spirit we confess Him as Lord, it's an issue of repentance. So, as we look at just those phrase, that phrase that we looked at, we see why it's so important. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Now, you know, when Jonathan asked me to do this, this phrase, you know, immediately, immediately kind of go, wow, what am I going to do with this? I mean, because it says what it says. And then you start to think about all those little parts. Jesus. Well, 
Why does he have that name? And what does it mean? What was its significance? Lord, why, is the, why, why that title? And why is it important that we understand that title and confess that title, that we believe that title? His only son. Well, why is that significant? What is that saying about God? What does it say about Jesus? What does it mean for him to be the only son? And what does it say about salvation? Since he's the only son, does that mean he's the only way? Absolutely. And our Lord. First person plural. It's an extremely important pronoun for us. Our. He is our Lord. You and I together. He has sovereignly placed us in his body, in the church. So this is very important. So, you know, I thank God for the Apostles' Creed. And, you know, and I hadn't really thought much about it until Dr. Muller wrote the book. And then when I heard we were going to be doing a series on it, I thought, okay. But you think about what it's stating. That what we believe is important. Knowing what you believe is important. Knowing why you believe what you believe is important. And since this creed takes so much time dealing with Jesus, we've got to pay attention. How, how nice is it to be able to, to use that creed? I mean, as archaic as some people may think it sounds, but it, the truth is not archaic. It's constant. How nice is it to be able to use that to, to even walk in your mind, to walk through when you're sharing the gospel with someone, or you're having a conversation at work or across the back fence, whatever it may be. And you're able to explain what you believe and why you believe it. And know that it's not just because of this ancient document, because this ancient document comes from an even more ancient document that's infallible. It's trustworthy in every area, every area of faith and practice. The Bible. So I would encourage you just, you know, if you have the book, read it. If not, you know, look at the Apostles' Creed. You can find it online or anywhere, really. And read through it and think about it. Chase down some of those things. Find out, you know, why does it say that? Where does Scripture support this? And let it bolster your faith. You guys have anything? Anything to add or that you, anything that hits you or that you're thinking about? About this little phrase? Absolutely. So we could say that sanctification is, is you, you could describe sanctification as the process by which we come to a deeper and more beautiful and glorious understanding of what mm -hmm. it means that Jesus is Lord and what it means for our lives, yeah. every aspect of our lives, mm -hmm. yeah. which can often be very uh, disruptive and disconcerting. <laughs> 
right. It, it's funny that you say that. There's been times in my life where I've sort of taken a snapshot of my understanding of, of, of things now, just from you know life experience and just years of walking with Christ and Him graciously doing a work of sanctification in me, though I've got a long... Anybody knows me? Knows that I've got a long way to go. But, but looking back, like you're saying, looking back at when I first became a Christian, I almost go, did I, did I really... Because I didn't understand any of this then. You know, so that's a good point because, that, yeah, I didn't know at that point what it meant to be, as a 19-year-old young man, what it meant to, for Jesus to be Lord of my life. What, so, that, so He graciously reveals what that means through the years and through experiences and through yeah absolutely yeah um and i think even the most mature saints when they behold his face they're going to realize i know nothing yeah hardly anything about i shared sunday um with with the students in the sunday school class a, a story about my grandfather we were just talking about sanctification and holiness and growing in christ and um, and I remember him when I was, this was before I was a believer. Um, and, I rem- and he had a, just a great impact. I've shared with you guys before, just a great impact on my life. As I watched him as a young man live out his faith and pray and do things, and, I w- and it just struck me. And I remember him saying, um, and this is one of the godliest men I've ever, ever known, saying um, something to the effect of, you know, I'm, I've got so far to go. I know so little, and I've got so far to go. You know, and I, I hear that and go, well, what hope is there for me? You know, so, I mean, I've got, a, you know, I've got so far to go to get to where he was. Um, but again, that's one of those good things that God is so gracious to us to do that, to, to grow us and to reveal to us. And like Pastor Brian said, it, it can be very painful at times. Uh, certain times you examine yourself, and it's, it's tough. It's like a gut punch. When you realize, I mean, the Lord graciously, graciously bringing you to a place of repentance, when he reveals sin to you, man, it's tough. But then you remember, wow, this has been taken care of in Christ, and he's graciously showing me that I can repent and grow and, and move forward. That's a great point. I think, you know, it's a good thing for, for me to be convicted when I watch others in the body right. do things. Right. I mean, I'm convicted on a weekly basis coming here and seeing and talking to even the students in the class that I teach, the college guys and gals. It's convicting to watch some of these. I mean, it's, uh, and that's a good thing. 
because we, you know, you get to be my age, um, and I'll be 50, complacency can set in. I can, you know, it's easy to go into coast mode and think, well, but yeah, we need to constantly be pushing forward. And conviction is a good thing, a painful thing, but a good thing. And uh, yeah, I'm glad we're in the body to, to experience that with one another. Yeah. Yeah. We have never been exposed, and we talked about this Sunday. We have never been exposed to a monarchy. And exactly. What it's more like to live under another kingdom. Yeah. And when you find evangelism outside of America, it's normally a reform based theology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas in America, we get to choose, and you know, we, we vote, and we look at this. Yeah. <laughs> Go downhill. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you know John MacArthur said that said this what you just said. That's why we have a problem with God's sovereignty, is because we we've never lived under a monarchy. We don't know what it's like to live for a king. That's why you, it goes back to that that whole issue of well, I want to be the one who's choosing and in control and you know it's all about me and not submitting ourselves. That's good. That's good to remember. Anything else, guys? Will you lead us? Yes, I will. Oh, yeah, okay. I took my mic off because I didn't want you hearing me.